From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, you're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Now with today's program, here's Jeff. Welcome to the Jeff Nyquist Program. I'm your host, Jeff Nyquist. I'd like to talk about the U.S. economy. Uh, people say that economics is everything, what the business of America is business, and it's uh, about the economy stupid. We've all heard these slogans and these statements before, and there's some truth to them. The United States is the world's greatest economy. It is the nexus of the world economy. The U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. And Americans enjoy a standard of living and a sense of security that, that nobody anywhere in the world enjoys. Could that come to an end? Yes. It definitely could come to an end. The question is, how would it come to an end? I mean, nothing lasts forever. The the uh, the glory of Rome didn't last forever. Uh, the British Empire didn't last forever. And the United States, in its current state of world uh, hegemony, as some would call it, won't last forever either. And as Americans, we see the changes in our society, and we wonder... Do these changes in, for example, permissive attitudes, discipline, uh, test scores, uh, cheating in school, cheating in the business community, do these changes mean an economic change, an economic downturn? Do they mean that the United States is headed for a larger crisis? Well, I think that there are many reasons to think so. But tonight, my guest will be Michael J. Pansner. And Mr. Pansner has written a book called Financial Armageddon. We had him on the show previously, and he describes strictly financial reasons, things that we have done wrong as a economy that would logically lead to the unraveling of that economy and what that would mean for you and me and for the security of our country. So we'll be back with our guest after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 a part of your life. We are live radio 1020 WIBG. Where more people every day hear the truth. From Hurley in the morning to the wondrous story with Dave Bailey, Jay Sekulow live in the American Center for Law and Justice, and Josh Henning afternoons. South Jersey's cutting edge Christian news talk and your station for women's oldies every weekend. WIBG 1020 and WIBG.com plugging you into life. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. With me is my special guest, Michael J. Pansner. He's a 25-year veteran of a global stock bond and currency markets who has worked in New York and London for HSBC, Soros Fund, ABN AMRO, Dresdner Bank, and J.P. Morgan Chase. He is also a New York Institute of Finance faculty member and a graduate of Columbia University. Welcome to the show, Mr. Pansner. Thanks for having me on. Now, we had you on the show a couple months ago, uh, and you'd written this book, uh, Financial Armageddon, and of course, you were really uh, making a prediction about where the country was headed financially, that there was a financial disaster in America's future, and of course, in the world's future, and a lot of the things that were happening in August were indicating some kind of financial trouble beginning, and now we see, after two months, more indications of financial trouble. Um, how do you feel now, having made these predictions uh, about a financial 
a very dire financial situation for the United States and, and what you're seeing now with gold approaching uh, $800 an ounce and oil approaching $100 a barrel. Well, as I said before, the, the, the biggest problem with predicting financial Armageddon is being right. Um, the, the, the fallout, um, if it does actually pan out the way I believe it will, um, will be pretty severe. And, and, and certainly I, I think it's a little early to say for sure that this is it, but, but all the signs point to this being the kind of leading edge um, of that uh, uh, disintegration or unraveling process um, going forward, which you know will take a, a period of years as a process, not not an event. It's a process, but um, it, the, all the signs of what we've seen since August and and even these past few weeks um, suggest there's some serious problems in the financial system, for one thing. Yeah, and how is it? Is it? And we'll just talk a minute about uh, money and about the value of money. The dollar has been falling. Um, how much value has the dollar lost versus other leading currencies in the last, let's say, five years? Um, I think it's been roughly around a third. If you use something like the U.S. dollar index, um, is a kind of a ballpark number, um, and and maybe a, you know a bit plus or minus that, but. Uh, you know, I think around a third is, is probably the kind of number that people are looking at. And, of course, uh, now that could be a good thing, couldn't it? Because the U.S. balance of trade might correct itself if the dollar falls versus other currencies enough. Or am I mistaken? Well, I mean, no matter what sort of change you get, and, and, and I'm talking about, you know, both about economic data or financial data or markets, I mean, there's always winners and losers. The, the question is um, really the sort of sustainability and the longer-term implications. Uh, um, certainly, there are beneficiaries from a weaker dollar. Um, companies that export to other parts of the world, for example, uh, you know, some of our big industrial concerns have been beneficiaries. Um, you know, the people who make the tractors and the trucks and and other industrial goods that have been going to places like uh, Asia, for example. But the reality is, is that there's also a, a flip side to this. It, it boosts uh, the costs of our uh, imports. Um, creating inflationary pressures, um, and it, it, it affects confidence, um, which I think is the key issue. Um, it affects confidence in the country, confidence in the currency, you know, sort of on the longer-term basis, confidence in the financial system. So it's, it's a, it's a three-dimensional equation, and it's, there is no single good or bad side to it, but I would say on balance, uh, the, the weak currency we've had is, is, is not the kind of thing you want to be promoting. Are people losing confidence? I've heard some people who never, I would have thought, say negative things about uh, where the country is headed economically saying some things. Uh, what uh, what do, are you hearing and what do you think about the, the mood that's, that's taking hold now? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, uh, there's a couple of ways of answering that question. I think within the U.S., um, and certainly, I've gotten feedback from the time the book, you know, first hit the newsstands back, uh, the bookstands back in March. Um, there's this real strong cross section, and whether you're talking young or old, or uh, liberal or conservative, or southern or northern, or it really doesn't depend on on background so much. But there's this real cross section of people who think there's a, you know, there's problems, there's something wrong. They, there's this undercurrent, this mood that things are not as good as some would like them to seem. But even beyond that, if you step outside the shores of the U.S. and you go to other parts of the world, 
there's already an acknowledgement of sorts that uh, the U.S.'s role in the world is changing and that um, although we still obviously dominate militarily, um, the rest of the uh, the other aspects, um, economically, politically, and um, socially, um, there's a real sense that um, I think Americans have a, you know, the country, the leadership here has a, a distinctly different view than the rest of the world. The rest of the world seems to believe that America's role is, is, is diminishing fast. Well, let's talk for a minute about uh, money, about paper currency. The United States has the U.S. dollar, which is a paper currency. It's called a fiat currency. Uh, maybe you could explain what that means, that it's what is a fiat currency? Well, the, the jet, in, to put it in sort of simple terms, it's any currency that isn't backed by some, uh, if you like, hard asset. I mean, the traditional uh, backing for uh, currencies has been gold, for example. And the idea is that you find some uh, commodity, some good that is, has a relatively stable supply, uh, a relatively limited amount, can't be um, changed very easily, is widely recognized as having kind of inherent value of its own. And, and historically, gold has performed that role. You've also seen other precious metals like silver. But the idea in a fiat currency is that there's no real link. The, the, the currency doesn't stand for anything. It, you can't turn it in as you once could in the U.S. Uh, and get gold in exchange. All you have really is is essentially the promise of the U.S. government that they will uh, honor that debt, but th- that is 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 really uh, kind of an illusory uh, an illusory thing. Yeah, because uh, I mean, why couldn't the United States Treasury just simply print up more dollars to pay whatever needs to be paid? Well, that is the that's historically that's been the uh, the issue with all fiat currencies, and 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 uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, there are plenty of fiat currencies in the world. It's not just the dollar. I mean, most of the major uh, global economic powers rely on the same system. In fact, some of those who are um, you know hard money as, um, uh, individuals, in other words, they support this idea of a of a, of a firm tie to gold, for example. Um, they they really run the gamut from um, uh, every Western nation across you know across uh, every nation excuse me across the world. Um, so it's not just the U.S. I mean the problem with the U.S. is that there's a lot more people who hold that fiat currency because of the U.S.'s longtime status as a um, superpower and its and its uh, acceptance of that currency as a reserve currency. In other words something people will hold that they wouldn't naturally hold because it, it, it serves as a convenient store of value. Yeah, and the dollar has been sort of a magic paper then. Well, it has, but I think it's it, it went from being um, valued on a on a perhaps a, an appropriate basis to valued perhaps on the on on a, what it used to be. In other words, it seems to be right now living on the fumes of the past as opposed to the current circumstances. Is the United States, I mean, if you were advising um, the president or, or the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, would you suggest uh, that we go on to some kind of uh, currency that were backed by gold or silver or some other, as you say, solid asset or hard asset? Well, there are a number of people who make that case. In fact, uh, one of the um, individuals running for office, uh, Ron Paul, I think, um, has, you know, from the conser- from the Republican side, has made the case that we should have a currency that actually stands for something. Um, and, you know, uh, there are a lot of arguments to that effect. I mean, the problem when you have fiat currencies is is that the amount that gets produced 
is really in control of uh, essentially in, in, in control of government officials. So you're counting on the prudence of men who might have other agendas, who might have other reasons for doing what they do um, to sustain something that um, everybody depends on. And uh, it's probably it's not a good equation. Yeah. And of course, now, given the level of U.S. debt, it really wouldn't be practical now for the United States to say that its dollar was backed by gold. Because the United States would, wouldn't have enough gold to back. I mean, how much gold is there in the United States, and how does it measure out to the number of dollars that are out there? And do we know how many dollars are out there? Well, to be honest with you, I don't know the data, but I know that the, the, the extent of dollars produced um, relative to the amount of gold that might conceivably back it uh, has been out of whack for quite a while. So uh, I think that's unfeasible. And in fact, the argument uh, I make in my book is that ultimately um, the, the currency will be um, severely debased to the point where it will be worthless. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's, by the way, I, I, I think there's a process that gets us there. But, uh, you know, I, ultimately most fiat currencies, and it's not just the dollar, I want to emphasize, um, there are some who argue that, you know, the other nations like uh, the Euro, for example, in Europe or in Japan or whatever, uh, will suffer the same fate ultimately, but um, most of them uh, tend toward zero, essentially. So that there might be something like an economic law in which uh, paper currencies tend to move toward zero value over time. Would this be fair to say? Well, I think it's because of the reality that the, the people who are essentially in control of those currencies and the political reality that there's a there's a governments you know by definition seem to continuously overspend. Um, so you put the two together, you have uh, you know men controlling the amount of currency in circulation and a, and a constant political demand for more more currency essentially, um, and it's a recipe for um, long term debasement. And uh, you could say that um, a fiat currency is an open invitation to abuse and a temptation to spend and uh, act in economic ways that are not responsible. Um, Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. Yeah. And, of course, if we have a debasement of the currency, then that means that we also have a debasement of sort of our economic mindset or our our very mentality about the economy. Well, that is the issue. And and clearly, you know, it's a matter of degree. I mean, I I don't know how many of the your listeners might be familiar with the situation in Zimbabwe, but there you're talking sort of the maximum end of the scale in terms of debasement. I mean, essentially the currency is worthless now, and the country is impoverished. People are are going hungry. There's no jobs. It's, essentially, they've destroyed the economy. It's been a, a, a literal collapse. Um, I don't think we're necessarily at that point now in the U.S., uh, although some might think we are, but uh, I think that that prospect is out there, um, contrary to whatever else people might think about, you know, the United States' long history and its, uh, you know, its status as an economic superpower, I think that risk is real, uh, that we could, uh, you know, follow the Zimbabweans. It's interesting. I, I remember reading years ago the economic history of the Soviet Union, and one of the things when the Soviet economy got going after it got into NEP was they had a a ruble, and of course, whether or not they backed it by gold at any given time, I don't remember, but they always ended up taking away the backing, and the ruble has collapsed 
well, I can't remember the number of times that they had to recreate the ruble and right. start over. And it, of course, Russia being an economically weak country from the time of the, the, the Russian Revolution in 1917, the United States coming from the position, as you say, of being a strong country with a, a lot of uh, uh, history behind it and, and the value of the dollar having been backed by gold. Um, let me just ask you the question, if... This scenario, if it's true that that there is a, a debasement that's happened over decades to the American economic mentality and that the devaluation of the dollar, the, the, the dollar going almost to zero a value, is kind of built in. And whether it happens, it's beginning to happen now or later, you would agree, would you not, that sometime in, in our lifetimes, it's probably going to happen. Well, you know, I wrote a book essentially forecasting that as a as a um scenario um at the end of a of a long drawn out process, but yeah, I think we'll see at some point I think we'll we'll see uh, uh, the currency collapse and uh it, essentially its value is uh perhaps w- literally worthless, but certainly uh worth a lot less than it is right now, substantially less than it is right now. Yeah. With me is my guest Michael Pansner. He's written a book Financial Armageddon. Uh protecting your future from four impending catastrophes, and we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. Plugging you into life. We are Live Radio 1020 WIBG. Whether it's Hurley in the morning, Henning in the afternoon, Dr. Jim Dobson in Focus on the Family. South Jersey's fastest growing Christian news talk. Now with more than a million listeners and hits at WIBG 1020. WIBG. 1020 WIBG. Or at WIBG.com. Plugging you into life. All right, we're back. I'm Jeff Nyquist, and with me is my guest, Michael Pansner, his book, Financial Armageddon. And we were just discussing sort of the theoretical inevitability of paper currency collapse. And, um, you know, this is the one dimension, of course, of the problems that you talk about, and you talk about four impending catastrophes, and we'll talk about some of the other ones. But I wanted to go into depth about this dollar thing because it confuses a lot of Americans, and it it, it often confuses me. Um Let's say you have a bank, a major bank that's in trouble, and all of a sudden you have the Treasury come in and say, okay, we don't want this to happen. I mean, is it legal? Is it possible for the United States Treasury to print the money or make up or invent or create the money to put in the bank to make the the crisis go away? Well, I mean, the, let, let me let me put it this way. There's a slight misconception nowadays, in in my opinion, about when people talk about the Federal Reserve printing money. Okay, uh-huh. what the Federal Reserve prints right now, and and print is a is a is probably a poor euphemism, but what the Fed creates right now is credit money. Essentially, okay. they create loans out of thin air that bring uh, money into the banking system, and that money essentially gets recirculated around the system. It gets right. uh, re-leveraged up because of uh, reserve. Right. Of course, my question was about the United States Treasury, not the Fed. 
Right. But the issue is, is that um, the Fed acts, you know, on the basis of the Treasury. And my understanding, the way they would act would not be literally themselves doing it. They may channel um, government deposits into a into an unhealthy institution as a kind of a uh, a, a basis for supporting it, but I don't really know the answer to that question. Yeah, I mean, the the idea of actually just literally putting money in the account, uh, just giving them money, I don't think is either uh, legitimate or practical from a point of view of trying to explain that behavior. Right, because what I understand is that Congress must originate all spending, uh, must validate all government spending. You have a treasury that collects taxes based on laws passed by Congress. But if you have this fiat currency, you have the possibility of the United States Treasury printing money. And I was just wondering how that worked. But they don't print money. They don't create money. I mean, the Treasury issues debt, um, which essentially the debt gets sold and they get money in exchange for that. But there's no printing from a from a literal sense. Mm -hmm. um, the, the control of the currency rests in the hands of the Fed. And some argue that's not a good thing because there's some, you know, uh, quibble about its, you know, constitutionality of the Fed, for example, and uh, right. and why they have that authority uh, to begin with. So the Federal Reserve tells the Treasury how much money to print? Well, no, the Federal Reserve controls the flow of currency into the banking system by the by virtue of their open market activities. I mean, not, not to kind of get into the basics here, but um, they essentially add money into the system by buying and selling um, government securities in the open market. And right. what happens is they they agree to buy government securities. On the settlement date, they credit the bank account of the person they bought the security from out of thin air. It's a literally out of thin air transaction, mm -hmm. but it's not the Treasury doing that. It's the Federal Reserve. I see. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's very interesting because it takes certain things about the U.S. money system out of the hands of Congress. Well, that is that some, you know, uh, pure constitutionalists, and I, and I don't claim to be one, but mm -hmm. make the case that, you know, the Fed, Federal Reserve uh, at its heart is illegitimate uh, as an organization. But I don't really want to go there because I'm not an expert. I'm not a scholar on the history of the right. Fed. But that is the, um, you know, the argument that some make. What would we experience if the currency started to devalue? And you talked about how slowly these things would happen. Um, would we see what would we see in advance if this is continuing? If what your prediction is saying is true, and the currency is on the way down, what further things will happen along the way? Well, let me just qualify it a little bit because even in the book, I lay out the the whole process unfolding in a, in a kind of a series of steps. And there is an argument to be made, and, and I, it's my belief as well, that surprisingly you could see a, a period of time, maybe a couple, uh, a couple of years, where the dollar actually has some temporary strength. And there's a lot of factors behind that. One of them is the fact that uh, there's this tremendous um, quantity of U.S. dollar-denominated debt circling around the world. Mm -hmm. If there was a credit crunch, people would have a, a short-term demand for the currency, okay? So I, I want to distinguish my, my sort of, sort of short-term view and my longer-term structural view uh -huh. um, to, to kind of give you some background. But right. over the long haul, the, the signal for me as, as the point of no return would be to see the, the dollar versus 
most of the other uh, major world currencies like the yen, the Swiss franc, the the uh, euro, um, the kind of basket of large trading partners, to see the dollar hit um, new record lows against the whole sort of universe of, of major trading partner currencies. I think under those circumstances, I think would be a clear sign that the sort of end is here um, and and we're moving into the kind of devaluation phase. Um, that's my, that, if you were asking for a signal, that right. would be what I would be looking for technically. We're not there. Um, no. um, and in fact, you know, with all the talk lately about, for example, the the record high in the uh, in the euro. Well, in fact, if you look at you know currencies like the British pound, and you look at the the the, the old Deutschmark, which is a constituent, uh, a major constituent of the euro. You look at the yen. You look at some other um, major world currencies. We're nowhere near a record in terms of the dollar's weakness. Um, so it, it makes for good headlines, and certainly the dollar has been weakening. But I don't think we've reached the, the sort of uh, transition point where uh, you know where 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 we're moving into to sort of hyperinflation slash um, you know um, collapse of the currency. Right, and of course we're in a. Wouldn't you say we're in a a sort of a credit crunch right now? Yes, I mean. Uh, and the, and you know I think you opened the the sort of um, talk here with whether that was the sort of um, yeah, I guess for lack of a better word Armageddon type scenario and and I think it's it's very conceivable and a number of the developments that are going on in the in in the current environment are what I sort of ex- expected in terms of a progression um, when things go sort of from from bad to worse. I mean, I think it's a little early to say that this is it um, and ring the bell, right. but it certainly has all the hallmarks of the of the moving into the sort of systemic crisis type stage. Right. Yes. And of course, uh, I, I heard this argument between economics uh, students and and people who were involved in the market uh, six, seven years ago, the argument whether or not the United States would experience hyperinflation or it would experience uh, deflation, like in the Great Depression. Sure. And the thing that intrigued me was the idea put forward that we would experience deflation first, and then the large inflation afterwards. Well, that's my view. Yes. Um, and, and the main reason really comes down to the, the essence of what we've seen over the course of the past two decades, but really... Uh, it's been accentuated then, but certainly over the course of many decades, is this tremendous buildup of credit. I mean, it's a credit bubble in essence, it, and it's been a been a factor behind other kinds of bubbles like the housing market bubble. And ultimately, when you get credit bubbles, they're pyramids that once they start to collapse, tend to create downward pressure and liquidation pressures on assets of all kinds because bankers call in loans, there's bankruptcies, um, people find they have to scramble to make uh, payments so they sell other goods. The point is there's a system-wide liquidation pressure and that is inherently deflationary and that's what we saw in the in the Great Depression um, where prices across the board on the heels of uh, uh, on the heels of this system-wide collapsing credit, if you like. Um, and it's mainly because people have to raise cash and of one way or another, or they get uh, thrown into foreclosure or they get uh, thrown into bankruptcy or they get uh, their bankers liquidate them or they get margin calls. 
there's just this general pressure for people to sell things, to raise cash, to meet all these debts they took on when the times were good. And of course, when people have to sell things all at once, prices fall. And of course, that is what causes a lot of people to be thrown out of their jobs. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a self-feeding spiral. You, exactly. You hit it right on the head. And, and that is my argument. Look, there are some very smart people who are running around with the hyperinflation argument right now. I don't want to, and I don't rule anything out, but it's my understanding of history and it's my understanding of how we got to the point where we are now with this tremendous buildup of debt at every level, both in the U.S. and, and really around the world, um, that it's inevitable once the debt bubble deflates is that it puts pressure on prices. The pressure on prices puts pressure on the economy. That puts pressure on companies. They lay people off. That puts more pressure on prices. It's a, it's a really a self-feeding um, downward spiral. And um, you know the, the 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 comparable example, like I like I mentioned, is depression. But we've seen the credit bubbles deflated um, in throughout history, and ultimately it, it puts pressure on the asset prices because those asset prices were propped up by the credit to begin with. Right. So that what has happened, let's see if I can describe it in, in layman's terms in my own mind, because this is fascinating. They create a lot of debt. They send out a lot of credit. People can get loans at very low interest. They get kind of addicted to this easy money. They start that money has to buy something. It has to go somewhere, buy stocks, buy real estate, invest in things, whatever. And, of course, that drives the prices of real estate, for example, up so that suddenly a price of a home instead of being 300000 is 600000 as some of the homes in California here have, have gone. And then all of a sudden you have the prices out of whack and eventually – you have a credit contraction because people have to pay all the interest on all that and all this money. Exactly. Gets the interest compounding effect. You know, and I think Einstein referred to it as one of the great wonders of the world, interest compounding. I mean, it's it works for you when you're, you're the lender, but when you're the borrower, it works against you. And that is the sort of magic ingredient is that this interest compounding effect just makes this once you get to a certain level of debt, just unsustainable. I mean, people are not going to be able to pay it back. And when the growth of debt exceeds the growth in the economy, that's a basic structural, you know, problem. There's a train derailment in the future there, right? Yeah, well, some people call that Ponzi finance as well. Um, you know, it's had different kinds of names, but essentially the, you know, it's, it, it, you reach a point where this, like you pointed out, there's a serious disconnect between the extent of exposure, the extent of liabilities that people have, and their and their realistic ability to pay it back. Yeah, and of course, the thing that you describe happening with people not being able to pay back, let's just say mortgages. You've got all these people, they bought houses at the top of the market when they were twice or two and a half times, and then all of a sudden prices fall. Let's say they've fallen 20% or they shortly will. Suddenly these people are paying out money, high interest on things that uh, aren't worth what they paid for and that it's suddenly they have a strong incentive to walk away from it. Yes. And now multiply that at every level of society, um, you know, in terms of businesses, in terms of government, you know, the government deficit, in terms of state and local government borrowing. You know, the, the point is that the, the housing market is a very easy example to understand. But now extrapolate that to every level of society, which is, you know, in my opinion, what's happened. 
and that is, is it's just a tremendous tremendous pyramid and um and it all feeds on itself and it's all interconnected and the housing market is connected to what happens to the uh to tax revenues at the state and local government level and that's connected to what happens in uh bond markets that's connected to what happens to pension funds holdings i mean there's this is sort of daisy chain of linkages that um all get affected and they're all exposed in some way or another to the same uh, disconnect between the obligations people have and their ability to pay it back. Which is what you do very, very well in your book, by the way, I must say. And let's personalize this for a minute. Now, you know, I, I've had this discussion. I have a friend who bought, who owns two houses. Right. She has one house in the Bay Area and one house up in northern, further northern California. And I've been telling her for years, sell the house. Now, what you're saying is that we're going to experience deflation, so the the value of her house in dollars is going to go down, yeah. and and we're we're seeing that now. But if she waits long enough, won't she own her house for free? I mean, you know, this is going to be going through people's heads as they're hearing the program here. Well, uh, maybe you could address that. Well, it'll be worth nothing, or it'll be worth a very low price. But if she took on a mortgage to buy the house then she's going to owe, let's say for argument's sake, I'm just making these numbers up, she may owe $500,000 on a house that's worth $100,000 or worth 50000 or whatever. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm exaggerating right. the numbers here, but that's the whole point is that you had this buildup of asset prices, but asset prices fluctuate. The debt doesn't. So once the asset prices start fluctuating downward, you've locked in this high level of uh, debt. It's a bit like when the when the tide comes in and it establishes a water line, you know, um, up the side of the dock, um, and then it uh -huh. goes back out again. Well, as far as the 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 sort of marketplace is concerned, the debt is still up at that um, at that high tide water line, but the water is a lot lower that uh, actually you know sort of created it to begin with. I see. So that the the time between the deflation and the inflation or hyperinflation is a considerable length of time by which the person who owns the house is going to be looking at the house going, oh no, how can I pay out all this money on a house that's worth only a fraction of what I'm paying? Right. Exactly. And my reasoning and my rationale in the book and, and the reason why I think we go from that deflationary depression type environment is that I think at some point um, officials, the Federal Reserve or the Treasury or some combination, just decide literally they have nothing to lose, the economy is, is in tatters, and they decide to go to that point of actually creating currency, no longer creating credit, but literally creating currency. Now, you know, in the old days, in a place like uh, Weimar, Germany, they had to print it on printing presses. Well, now they'll be able to create currency by putting digital money in people's accounts. It'll be done electronically. Um, and they won't have to worry about whether they have enough ink or whether they have enough um, paper um, or enough printing press uh, hours to go. And I think that at some point there will come a, uh, a sort of a inflection point moment where um, things will get so severe that they'll just throw in the towel and, uh, and all prudence will be totally lost. And that's when you'll see these inflationary pressures build up, and that's when you'll see the currency essentially collapse. Interesting. With me, my guest, uh, Michael Panzner. He's written a book, Financial Armageddon, and we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. 
WIBG Proactive Local News. When you have to know. You have to know. You've come to the station that gives you local and regional news all the time. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. All around Atlantic City as you look at our landscape, you see signs of investment in Atlantic City. South Jersey, Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. It's local and regional news when you need it. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. Some of our beaches in the northern end have been eaten away. Right now, Rick. South Jersey, Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. 1020 WIBG. We've got you covered. Covered. And now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. This is Jeff Nyquist and my guest, uh, Michael Pansner, author of Financial Armageddon. And we've been talking about the dollar, about debt, about where it's headed, and whether the United States is headed for a financial crisis. And um, Michael You'd written in your book about the dangers of derivatives, and a lot of Americans don't know what derivatives are uh, in the U.S. economy. What is a derivative? Well, at, the, at their heart, they're paper promises that depend on something else for their value. I mean, some people are familiar with things like options. Option to buy a piece of property is where you exchange a little bit of money now so that you have the potential to buy that property sometime in the future, for example. So it's a, it's a, it's really a, it's a promise rather than an actual, say, um, asset or security uh, in the sense of like a stock or a bond, okay? Um, and it's, it's my contention, and I think we're seeing events on, unfold right now, that the extent of these kinds of creations, these kinds of promises that were, were made over the past um, two decades is coming home to roost. And, and some argue, uh, and it seems like that's the case, that what we're seeing now with some of the big uh, banks, for example, Citibank, is their exposure to some of these um, derivatives, some of these uh, synthetically created securities, which suddenly don't seem to have the value that people said they should. Um, they seem to have, uh, in fact, uh, a far less value than people assume they would. And those are involved with um, other kinds of accounting uh, machinations, um, off-balance sheet holdings. Um, you'd really have this whole toxic mix of, of, I call it Frankenstein finance, that is going to play and is playing, I think, a, a significant role in the in the sort of um, wipeout that I see coming. So, in other words, um, people have been creating values or creating the equivalent of currency or credit by inventing these paper instruments called derivatives. Right. And so that is merely added to the, I mean, if, if I understand basic economics, that would merely add to the credit inflation. Um, yeah, that is the argument. And, you know, the problem is that to, to a certain extent, we don't know the full scale of it. I mean, we have some sense of it, and I quote some of that data in my book. But the biggest problem is that no one really knows the, the sort of uh, true scale of, of this kind of activity. And all they can do is kind of um, sort of hint at it. And even that's scary. So yeah. I think it's, yes, it's, it's been a factor. And I think it also has exaggerated, like you point out, has exaggerated this credit pyramid, this credit bubble type structure. And the point is that once the pyramid starts unraveling, it's like pulling out one of those, uh, I think it's Jenga was the name of the game where you pull out the blocks at the bottom of the, the tower. Well, once you pull out a few of those blocks, then the whole tower topples over. And I think that's the kind of situation we're seeing. Now, let's talk about people's retirements for a second. We've got all these people, They, I mean, I hear people talk about it all the time. I've got all this in my retirement, and in two years I'm going to retire, I'm going to have this much money, and I'm going to have 
and and people have retirements from like if uh, their company promises them so much after they they leave and and the government does it and they've also got retirement uh, accounts like these uh, 401k's what what does all this mean for that kind of thing retiring with these kind of accounts well there's there's different aspects to that the first problem is is like the the situation we have both in the private sector, the state and local government sector, and at the federal level is that a number of promises have been made, and if you add them all up, it's a breathtaking amount of money, and there's nothing in place now to assure that that money will be available when people want to draw on their retirement. Uh, that's the first thing. The private sector, um, ironically enough, is a little better off in some respects, but what they're doing is trying to shift more and more of the risk onto the back of workers. I mean, you know, something like um, uh, nowadays it's almost impossible to find too many private companies offering uh, defined benefit plans, which is your traditional pension. Most people have been forced into plans where the company may or may not make a contribution, but nobody guarantees how much money they're going to have at the end when they actually retire. The risk is suddenly all on the back of the workers. Um, and there's been a lot of that going on. You know, the, in fact, I think there was a book by that title, Risk Shift, uh, The Great Risk Shift. And there's an element that, that's been going on uh, dramatically. But you put that combination together with the fact that there's so many promises that have been made that haven't, they're, they're essentially called unfunded promises, to, to put it succinctly. And take that together with the fact that if a lot of these asset values, whether you're talking stocks or bonds or um, other kinds of, you know, property, for example, real estate. If all of this value that comprises at least some of the private sector pension obligations, for example, that backs it, is based upon um, a credit bubble type environment, then you could find like this sort of perfect storm scenario that when uh, markets start unraveling, the values of the pension funds that do exist start unraveling, and at the same time, all the promises that were made in the future uh, suddenly become um, incomprehensible, and government and companies and everybody starts scaling back, and all of a sudden, everybody finds that their retirement future is is disappearing before their eyes. Wow, and and that's something that is very possible given the situation we're in. I believe so, and you know, people will make the argument, for example, that um, you know we have a long time before the bulk of the baby boomers retire, and the government will step in and take some steps. You know, maybe they'll change the retirement age, which, by the way, I think is likely. Um, maybe they'll try and boost, you know, the amount that's paid in, collected in terms of taxes. But the economics just don't work, and people are living longer. And, you know, when Social Security was first set up, for example, there was something like 40 or 50-odd workers per, for every retiree. And by the time, the, you know, the bulk of the baby boomers start retiring, there's going to be two workers for every uh, retiree. And it's just not sustainable. It's not a, a sustainable model. If you look at all the money that the federal government collects and distributes, the largest program is not defense, it's Social Security. Yeah, and, and the, the, what's even worse is that Social Security is probably, if you want to talk about it, relatively speaking, is probably in much better shape than uh, if, you, if you really want to go into to Medicare. Medicare is the real horror nightmare story. Um, that's the one that, in fact, makes up the bulk of the trillions of dollars of unfunded liabilities. I mean, Social Security, to a certain extent, is, is, is the least of our worries, to be honest with you. Um, but, you know, you have this aging population and you have medical care 
costs have been expanding fairly dramatically and consistently over a period of time. And you're going to find that there's all these future promises been made to look after people when they get old, look after their health care, and, and the money's not going to be there. And, and of course, uh, what's interesting is, is the children, people not having as many children, if these things are funded by continued economic growth and more young people working in the economy to pay the taxes to support the older people, we need a whole lot more illegal aliens, don't we, to keep, up, uh, keep our heads above water? Whether you, they're illegal or legal, you don't need a whole lot more workers. That's for sure. Um, and that, but you know, that's what you just described. I mean, has been is a, is a common problem not only in America in other countries. I mean, yeah. it's, I think it's been called a demographic tsunami. Yeah, in Europe, it's really serious. In Europe, yes. And, and Japan is another example. I mean, you ha- you know you have aging populations and you don't have the young people. You know, whether they're actual, um, you know, indigenous population or whether they're immigrants to support them. And it, it's a catastrophe in the making. Yeah. What really interests me about this, the federal government has a major responsibility, which, uh, which sort of trumps, in my view, all the other responsibilities, because uh, after all, when George Washington was president, there were only three departments of government, the War Department, the Defense Department, and the State Department. Right. And uh, all the welfare departments of the government didn't exist. They didn't believe that the federal government should be in that business. And uh, defense seems to me to be at risk in the scenario that you outline, because uh, the way domestic politics works in the United States is that the politicians seem much more tuned to the cries of their constituents, the distress of their constituents, whether those are major corporations or, depending on your political party, uh, the workers or the poorer folk of your district. And uh, that means that in this scenario of financial crash, the U.S. government is more likely to cut defense spending massively than to cut any of its social programs first. Well, I agree, and uh, but not only that, I think at the moment it's you know the defense spending that goes on is a, is, is a contributing factor in, in the in the way this country is being bankrupted. I mean that's that's the reality of it. I mean you know it, the classic model, and I'm sure you know perhaps better than me on this, but the classic model of uh, empires falling is. Uh, is is imperial or military overstretch, and uh, you know people like to refer to the U.S. as being like Rome, and I mean that was the issue. I mean we had these sort of plants and bases across the world, and and we're engaged in two you know major conflicts right now. We're spending a huge amounts of money in terms of an economy that uh, can't sustain it, and I think once the pressures really come on and we start to see domestic. Um, you know, the, the citizenry essentially uh, objecting and clamoring to be taken care of, then you could see suddenly see that whole um, sort of effort, you know, disintegrate. And uh, in fact, the U.S. could go from being sort of military superpower to, to also ran. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because since about the 18th century, maybe before then, governments have financed, particularly the British, I think, were among the first to do this, financed their wars by going into debt. Right. To finance them. And it's what's allowed these large military establishments and allowed countries to remain solvent through different conflicts because war is so very expensive nowadays. What was interesting, I, I read earlier in the year a history of Rome and, and the author's name escapes me. It's a recent history of Rome. He did an analysis in that history, fascinating, that what happened in Rome is when these barbarian incursions began to happen in the Western Roman Empire, they took out the tax base of certain key areas 
so that the Roman government couldn't raise money to raise the troops and the armies to throw the barbarians out. And so that you had a financial crisis actually occurring so that the Western Roman Empire literally couldn't finance its own defense. Well, uh, that was probably a, a great tactic, a uh, great strategy. Um, I mean, I don't know if it was planned strategy. It certainly was a great one. It wasn't a, a planned strategy. And in fact, they didn't have a system of credit like we have today, right. which is interesting. And of course, what your scenario introduces, is if the system of credit collapses, you're almost in a position of the uh, late Roman Empire where you have to come up with something of value immediately because people aren't taking your promissory notes or they get to the point where they just start the, the printing process, where they um, just hope they can print enough of it at a faster rate than it's devaluing to essentially keep the ship afloat. But that becomes a self-fulfilling yeah. collapse then. I mean, that's what happened in Zimbabwe. They just keep printing more and more of the stuff, hoping they can print it at a faster rate than people realize uh, that it's being devalued. Yeah. yeah, and of course, the United States has this defense establishment, enormously expensive aircraft carriers, modern jet fighters, nuclear missiles, submarines, tanks, helicopters, aircraft, the whole nine yards, and the logistics and the training that goes into that, the, the, the bases. If you have this system beginning to collapse, you can't recruit people if you can't pay them, you can't pay military retirements. They have a very generous military retirement system. You know, they have people have retired after 20 years. And so it, the repercussions for Europe and Asia, where the United States has sort of maintained the global order. And isn't there a, a vicious cycle in this where part of the dollar's value is based on the power of America to enforce the global economic peace? And that if that is gone, then who needs dollars? Yeah, it's no. I agree 100. percent You know, some would argue that they're they're coincidental, but I think they're co both coincidental and correlated. This kind of um, vicious, self-perpetuating uh, cycle where the U.S. weakens, therefore it uh, weakens people's interest in the dollar, or the weakening weakening dollar weakens their ability to sort of project their military might, and it and it kind of feeds around and around, and it's mm -hmm. it's a spiral downwards. I I I think that what you're describing is exactly spot on. And uh, now let's talk about Asia and Europe for a second, because we import so much from Asia and Europe. And of course, the falling dollar means we can less and less afford to import it. Also, importing oil from the Middle East, that's going to have a tremendous depressive effect on uh, Europe and, and Japan and, and China, because, because suddenly the market will be flooded with goods that nobody wants to pay the going price for. People want to hold on to their dollars or whatever when this begins. And so those goods are going to have to be dropping in price, which is going to throw a lot of people out of work in Japan and in Europe and China. Well, and the optimist point of view, and I disagree with this, the optimist point of view is that um, places like China, for example, they'll turn inward. They'll, they'll go from an export-oriented economy to a consumer-led economy. I think that will happen ultimately, but I think it may take 10 to 15 years. But there's a seriously disrupted transitional period in between where we are now and, and getting to that point where you know the Chinese become essentially self-oriented and consumer-oriented. Um, so that's you know that is the bull side of that argument is oh that's okay when the U.S. fades um, everybody will just service their own citizens but I, I think there's going to be trouble uh, trouble ahead first. Yeah, and of course with the United States 
no longer managing global security, no longer protecting Taiwan and Japan and South Korea, which is almost certainly would be a consequence of what you're talking about, China would then have a motivation not to turn inward, but to militarize and to do like other countries like Nazi Germany did during the Great Depression. Germany did turning to Nazism in the Great Depression in Japan is that is become militaristic, become imperialistic. And uh, that is a way of turning inward. And uh, I think we've seen that before, and we could even see it in other countries in Europe as we had before in the period before World War II. But not only that, I think the, the key issue in China as well is this whole demographic uh, imbalance, the sort of male-female population that stemmed from their, you know, the decades of social engineering trying to keep their population under control. Well, there's a lot of people making the argument that by nature, when you have these large hordes of young single men um, coming into their own, so to speak, that it creates a warlike kind of perspective anyway. So you get in an environment where the U.S. loses its, uh, you know, global policeman's role and people feel like they can push, you know, push the edge a little bit. And then you get countries like China where there's going to be this natural militancy because of some demographic distortions. And you could be setting up for some for some serious conflict in the years ahead. Yeah, and it's funny. In the Great Depression, we saw the same thing you know, deflation, and we saw economic crisis in one country after another, and we saw the rise of dictatorships, militarization, uh, the breakdown of trade, the rising of trade barriers, nations becoming more xenophobic, more nationalistic, more militaristic that we saw before. We have every reason to think that this is going to happen again. Well, you know, that's a scenario lay out in my book. I mean, I think that you're going to see a rising protectionism. I think you are going to see a, a complete souring of the social mood. I think you are going to see a lot more conflict. Um, and not only that, I think, you know, we're at a point in time where uh, you could make a, a fairly strong case that the, the U.S. is an empire is ebbing, but there's no natural heir apparent. Um, so you could find yourself in a kind of war of the world scenario where, you know, you have all these people running around, competing for resources and competing for um, water, oil, and air in some cases, you know, the pollution problems they have in China. Um, so, you, you know, you could have, a, a in my view, a, a, a fairly dark ages kind of environment. Mm -hmm. And uh, one has to wonder, you know, what goes up must come down. How far could mankind advance? How many people could exist on this planet? How much prosperity can there be before something turns it around? Well, look, the biggest thing that I always get in terms of like the book I've written, which is, you know, makes a fairly severe outlook, I guess, for for the short run, you know, if the short run is a decade or so. Mm -hmm. um, but over, over time, you know, mankind has managed to shake off a lot, and I'm sure they'll shake this off as well. But, mm -hmm. you know, it could be in, in the grand scheme of things, if it's 10 or 20 years of uh, of very difficult and treacherous and dangerous times, it's still going to be a struggle for most people. I mean, I think in the long run, we'll muddle through. Um, but I think, you know, if you're talking a decade or two, it could be a, a fairly uh, traumatic period. Yeah. Do you have any closing remarks, Michael? Well, I mean, you know, the thing to remember is that when I wrote this book, I didn't write it because I want this to happen. I just feel like it's where the forces are, are kind of al aligning. And I think that's the pe thing people should bear in mind is even if they don't necessarily buy the worst case scenario, I think they need to pay attention to what's going on because things are going to be different than they were. Yes, very definitely. They will be different. Michael, I want to thank you for joining us because a lot of these things, you know, 
a lot of people they listen to it and they don't quite understand what um what we're talking about and i think this was good because it really brought it to where the average person could grasp a lot of it and uh this is jeff nyquist and my guest uh, michael pansner he's the author of financial armageddon protecting your future from four impending catastrophes and i want to thank you for being on the program thanks very much jeff well, um, hope you're wrong. <laughs> I wish I'm wrong, too, Jeff. And I look forward to reading your writings. I, I do read them regularly, so um, keep up the good work. All right. Well, take care. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. WIBG Proactive Local News. When you have to know. You have to know. You've come to the station that gives you local and regional news all the time. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. All around Atlantic City, as you look at our landscape, you see signs of investment in Atlantic City. South Jersey, Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. It's local and regional news when you need it. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. Some of our beaches in the northern end have been eaten away. Right now, Rick. South Jersey. Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. 1020 WIBG. We've got you covered. Covered. And now once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Well, the economic situation of the United States is connected to the security situation of not only the United States, but the entire civilized world. And it is, in fact, the, the core of security for civilization, for the civilized world. And if something happened to that core, civilization itself would be imperiled. Since World War II, the United States has been the leading power for peace and democracy. Uh, if you're a communist, you don't believe that, uh, but it's the truth. Uh, the world order that we have seen since 1945, which has seen the unprecedented growth of prosperity and uh, economic well-being of peoples, the advance of science, it has all been done under the protection of the United States military. The United States military that helped defeat Germany and Japan in World War II and held back the communist menace during the Cold War. That power could go away in an economic crisis. The United States uses a paper currency that currency, as our guest has just explained, could become worthless in a very short period of time, meaning a few years. Right now, we're in a credit crunch. Uh, Mr. Pansner wrote a book, Financial Armageddon, in which he described the path to that uh, financial crisis. I don't think we're necessarily at that point now in the U.S., uh, although some might think we are, but uh, I think that that prospect is out there contrary to whatever else people might think about you know the united states long history and it's uh you know its status as an economic superpower i think that risk is real and we do seem to be on that path to that crisis if the united states loses the ability to finance its vast military machine it can no longer protect the free people of south korea japan taiwan or the Western European countries. It cannot keep the flow of oil open in the Persian Gulf against the autocracies and dictatorships that exist in that part of the world. It cannot restrain the military aggression of Russia under its new KGB leadership. The situation that is 
possible that Mr. Pansner describes is extremely serious. It's not just that Americans won't be living uh, in, in the comfort that they have experienced. It means that a lot of people in the world could be living under tyranny, and that tyranny could be spread, and it could mean war in which millions of people are killed. I am Jeff Nyquist. I hope that none of these things happen, but we do have to watch and wait, and we need to be vigilant, and we need to be informed as citizens. I am Jeff Nyquist. I hope you will join me next week on the Jeff Nyquist program. Until then, be well. From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and from our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City Suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, you've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com.